There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Harriet Minter, and this is the Badass Women's Hour. On this week's show, the man investigating the police response to the Clapham Vigil is suing the Home Office for sex discrimination. Yes, he's suing them because he's been discriminated against as a white man. You'll not be surprised to know I have thoughts on this. Oh, so many thoughts. Plus, if you're in need of some inspiration, I interview the joy that is Professor Sue Black, one of the UK's foremost computer scientists. She left school with five O-levels and didn't go back to education until her mid-twenties when she was a single mum who'd left an abusive relationship. We talk about self-belief, the horror of networking and the joy of getting older. And listener questions are back. This week, what to do when your parents-in-law want to move in and you just want some time to yourself. First up, let's talk sex discrimination. So there's to be an investigation into the Met Police's handling of the vigil for Sarah Everard and other women who've died at the hands of men, which happened about 10 days ago. And this weekend, it has come to light that the man in charge of coordinating that investigation is currently suing the Home Office because he found out a black woman was being paid more than him. Matthew Parr is one of five HM inspectors of constabulary, and he's currently paid a very nice £140,000. His colleague, Wendy Williams, is paid £185,000. Parr is claiming she earns more than him because she's a black woman. Well, actually, technically, he's claiming that he earns less than her because he's a white man. I'm not quite sure where the difference is there, but there probably is one. Now, I have no idea whether that's true or not. But I regularly talk about how important it is that we're open about salaries so that we can all be paid equally regardless of our race or gender. And so if Parr is being paid less because he's a white man rather than what he should have been paid, then, well, he should have his salary adjusted. That's only fair. Of course, there is the question of whether Parr is being paid less because of his race or gender or whether Williams is being paid more because she's just better. Or possibly even that the police need to do some frantic rejigging of their gender pay gap and that's going to land them with some problems. But either way, that's still nearly a 25% difference between their salaries for what appears to be the same job. And I guess if the roles were reversed, I wouldn't be happy with that difference just being written off to just experience either. So yes, he can have an explanation for it. And I think we're going to see more and more cases of white men claiming sex and race discrimination over the coming years. Partly because as society evens itself out, there will be some discrimination, which is to say, while we all like to think that if we had the power, we'd wield it in a completely fair manner, we probably wouldn't. All of us are predisposed to like and promote people like us. That's just human nature. It's just that for a very long time, the only people doing the promoting were white men. The other reason is simply this. For a long time, if you're a white guy who was as good as the other candidates, you got the job. If you're a woman or a person of colour, you had to be exceptional in order to stand a chance. 
Now the roles are starting to reverse. So I know recruiters who will admit that faced with two candidates of a similar caliber right now, companies will probably pick the woman just because they need to be seen to be equaling out their numbers. However, what we can see from the hiring numbers is that while more women are being promoted than ever before, they're still not being promoted at the same rate as men. And those same recruiters will tell you if the man is better, even just a little bit better, he's still got the job. So where white men are right now is in the exact place that women and people of color have been for a long time. You have to be exceptional. And you know what? I understand if they are pissed off about that because it is tiring. I wouldn't blame Par if he was finding the constant need to be exceptional and that just being good enough wasn't enough to increase either your pay or your promotion chances. I wouldn't blame if he was finding that tiring. It is really tiring. And quite frankly, none of us should have to put up with it. We should aim to be the best we can be and be honest if that best means we're getting beaten out by others, just as long as we're being beaten out by others because they're better than us, right? That's all any of us want. What we should not do, however, is put someone who's feeling actively persecuted because of their gender in charge of an inquiry which is about gender. Because quite frankly, I don't think any of us will believe them whatever they say. This is the problem when you have somebody who's actively involved in an experience or in this case, a lawsuit, which is about gender, even if they are completely impartial, the likelihood is their word isn't going to be trusted. And the fact that the police force couldn't see that, couldn't foresee that happening, really says to me they're not taking this as seriously as they could do. Someone who's used to being on the outside and just adapted to it is this week's guest, Professor Sue Black, OBE. She is one of the UK's leading computer scientists and an all-round badass woman. Her life story is amazing and I loved speaking to her. Here she is. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Hello, Sue. Hi, Harriet. I saw you talk many, many years ago at The Guardian about Bletchley Park. And you came in and talked about creating a community project and how you get people inspired in an idea. And you were so inspiring. I was just like, I think she's amazing. And I followed your career ever since. So thank you. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. (laughs) Um, So for people who don't know you and have not been, you know, like mildly stalking you like I have, um, for people who don't know you, tell us kind of who you are and what you do. Well, now I'm Professor of Computer Science and Technology Evangelist at Durham University. That's my main role, (laughs) I guess, in life, but I do lots of other things as well. And when people think of a kind of a professor of computer science, I mean, for a start, they probably think of a man, for being honest. And I think it's probably quite, like, quite classically geeky and sort of a a bit kind of I'm going to use this word and I'm so sorry a bit colourless like (laughs) not very interesting and yet you are famous for kind of brightly coloured hair like quite you know expressive how did you get into computer science wow well um so well like where do we start I guess well you know like you said in the intro I I um I left school at 16 with five O levels and my home situation wasn't great so I left home and left school and I, I started A-levels, but um, it didn't work out. So then I, um, I then worked for four years. I married at 20, had three children by the time I was 23. And then, unfortunately, my marriage broke down. I ended up in a women's refuge. 
And then um, it wasn't really until I came out of the refuge with the kids and was trying to work out what to do with my life, really, and how to support my kids that I started thinking about going back into education. And I suppose, first of all, I really thought, you know, like I need to get a job so that I can earn enough money for me and the kids. But then realised I only had five O-levels, you know, I didn't have many qualifications. I wouldn't be able to earn enough to even pay for childcare. So that going back to work wasn't really an option. So then I really thought, okay, I've got to try and get back into education, try and get a degree, because then I know I'll be able to earn a bit more money. And then maths had been my favourite subject at school, so I thought, well, I'll try and get a maths A-level. I went along to the local college, which is Southwark College in London, and luckily they had like a fast-track maths course, which was two evenings a week and 20 hours private study at home, and you'd get the equivalent of two A-levels in maths in a year. So I did that, and then I thought, well, I could do a degree in maths or a degree in computing and I just I think I just kind of thought that technology was exciting I think I partly thought well I'd be able to earn more money if I've got a degree in computing than in maths yeah um and uh yeah that was it really I was I did a bit of coding in my um, maths course and I I sort of half understood what I was doing um but I was very intrigued by it I suppose and that yeah I just got very excited about technology and computer science I suppose I love this idea that you sort of half understood what you were doing. Because I think, <laughs> yeah, I, this has been the theme throughout my life, actually. <laughs> I think so many women in particular, but people, but women in particular, are kind of put off maybe science and tech because we go, well, I don't really understand it. And, yeah. you, you know, people either get it or they don't. What do you think about that belief? I don't think that's really true. And I think, you know, I think we've, Unfortunately, kind of got stereotypes in our head, you know, like you're thinking about a computer science, you think computer scientist, you think of a man, which I probably do as well, even though I don't necessarily want to. (laughs) And, you know, you quite often get asked to, you know, like think of a scientist or picture a scientist or something. Um, And um, yeah, and I, even though I don't want to still think of a man in a white coat, you know, I can't, a white man in a white coat even. So, you know, I just can't get that out of my brain. So, yeah, I think. You know, I don't really know if it's because I, you know, I didn't really have much parenting from the age of 13. I suppose my mum died when I was 12 and then I was sort of a bit on my own after that. So I don't know if it's maybe because of that, that I didn't have so much of that kind of or those stereotypes in my head. And I just yeah. thought I'll go for the thing that I think I can do, I suppose, which <laughs> which was maths. You know, and I'm not a maths genius or anything, but I just really love maths. And so, so, you know, another thing is I think you don't have to be the, the best person ever at everything. You just have to be good enough to get through. And I think that's another thing that's really kind of helped me in that I want to be the best. But if I'm not, it doesn't, you know, yeah. I just think, oh, well, you know, I'll pass that. I'm on to the next thing kind of thing. <laughs> I think that's such an important life lesson, actually, because we can get a bit caught up with needing to be the best or be perfect yeah. or get it all right. Yeah. And actually, sometimes it can be okay just to be good enough. That's yeah, absolutely. Fine. You know, and I think we, we only learn things by making mistakes or getting things wrong, really. Mm. You know, if you think of babies learning to walk, they don't just suddenly stand up and start walking one day. Yeah. You know, they've had to, to try over and over and over again to be able to do it. And I think that's just natural. That's how we learn things. We've talked a lot about violence against women and girls. And you obviously yeah. have had personal experience of this and then personal experience of being in a refuge shelter and rebuilding yeah. your life yeah how how hard was that 
<laughs> quite mm. hard, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah well, I, can't, I can't say it was easy because it definitely wasn't. But I have to say, you know, I just kind of, you're making me think of like the first full day in the refuge and, and um, I was given, I think, like £10 by the social services to go and buy some food for me and the kids. So, you know, kind of like went to the local supermarket and um, got some shopping. And I came out of the supermarket and I was walking up the road and suddenly I just felt violently ill. And I ended up being sick in the gutter. And then for some reason, after I was sick, I started like walking along, pushing the buggy. I had some food. I was kind of safe. And I started thinking, you know, because I was really worried, I think. Yeah, you know, I'd had a very stressful day the day before having to leave home, you know, kind yeah. of under threat of being killed. And I started, I just started thinking it's all going to be okay, you know. And actually, it was easier living in a refuge than it was with, you know, a kind of a volatile ex-husband who was threatening to kill my children. So, in fact, you know, like feeling safe is so important. You know, and that's why it really worries me when our, our government don't mm-hmm. support refuges enough. You know, there should be a place for everyone that needs it in a refuge. And, you know, I just think back to that time. And if there hadn't been a refuge for me to go to, yeah. I would have had nowhere to go. Yeah. You know, so I would have been on the street with three children, three small children. You know, and it's just, unfortunately, you know, part of our society is that people don't always behave in the best way towards each other. And so we need to look after people that, that don't have anywhere to go and are under threat of violence. And I think also that, you know, a, a really sad part of our society is that we make some very harsh judgments on women, on single yeah. mothers and about what is possible for that. Yeah, completely. Absolutely. And so there was this thing, um, so, you know, like mm. that was in the late 80s yeah. yeah late 80s and uh, there really was this thing the government was really down on on single parents and uh, yeah. it was all about family values john major mm-hmm. that kind of time and so you know i just felt very kind of vilified by the press for for what i was doing but i just thought what have i three little kids what had i done that was wrong why like why was i being vilified in in the media by the government I just didn't understand it. And and just, you know, also being poor, you know, people treat you differently when you're poor, unfortunately. Yeah. And, um, you know, something that, that kind of now and again pings into my mind is that I'm the same person now. You know, now I'm Professor Sue Black, OBE. <laughs> people treat me very, very differently. Not everyone, obviously, but some people treat me very, very differently to how they would when I was that single parent, you know, living on benefits walking around Brixton with my three little children. And, yeah, I, I still don't really understand why people judge people so much, you know, that, that are living in poverty for no fault of their own, really. Do you think that experience and coming through that has made you made you a different type of leader? Because, you know, when I was researching you, somebody describes you as embodying the traits of a modern leader. And certainly when I look at the work that you have done and the things you've achieved, one of your, if you don't mind saying, one of your key skills is the ability to bring people with you and to say, actually, here is something that we can get behind and that we can, that you can be a part of if you just come with me on this. And that feels like that's the sort of leadership that requires a really deep level of empathy and understanding of humans. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I mean, it's it's hard to say because I can't 
be the other person that didn't have all that stuff happen. Um, so, and it's quite hard to analyze your own actions. I guess the older you get, the easier it gets in a way because you see patterns of behavior. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like now I'm in my 50s and I can kind of look back at various things that I've done. And a lot of the time it's because I've got angry about something or annoyed yeah. and wanted to sort it out, you know, whatever that is. So whether it's, you know, the fact that, that there's there's loads of mums who could be, you know, I set up a social enterprise tech mums, loads of mums, particularly living on low incomes, who could be living a better, you know, sort of more economically happy, I guess, life. Yeah. Um, if they just understood some basics of technology through to running the campaign to say Bletchley Park, you know, first of all, getting annoyed that the women's story, you know, the fact that it was 80% women worked at Bletchley Park and that story still isn't properly out there enough. Yeah. Um, and that 10,000 people worked there. So raising the profile of women, then finding out Bletchley Park was actually having financial difficulties and might have to close. So getting annoyed about that, you know, with Bletchley Park's amazing contribution and then so running a campaign to save it for three years. You know, and then, you know, more recently at Durham, uh, we got funding from the Institute of Coding to run a program to retrain women into tech careers and then really focusing on women from underserved communities because I just feel like so many people aren't given the opportunities that so many other people are, yeah. you know, and that annoys me, I suppose, in, in various different ways. <laughs> and so when I get annoyed, I just want to do something about it. <laughs> I love that. I love that there's like, you spot something, you're like, no, that's, I'm not happy with it. It's not happening. <laughs> yeah. It. Um, yeah. Can I ask you about your career in computer science? Because sure. you have, you've set up lots of amazing groups, which seem to have a kind of theme about aiming to help women in computer science. Yeah. When you got started in it in the 80s and 90s, and I mean, even now it's massively male dominated, but then hugely so. What was it like? to sometimes be the only woman in the room? Well, I have to say, it hasn't changed that much. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's changed in some ways and not in others. So, you know, back back then, so in like 1998, I was doing a PhD in, um, in computer science and mm. I, you know, I was very shy, not anymore, thank goodness. I managed to kind of get over that gradually over the years. Uh, but I was very shy and my PhD supervisor was, was saying, you've got to network at conferences. You know, it's not just what you know, it's who you know. So I'd go to these academic conferences, like sort of mathsy computer science conferences and, and try to speak to people, not thinking, I, it just didn't occur to me that I was a woman speaking to a man in a mainly, a sort of majority male conference it didn't occur to me. Yeah. Um, and I had some not so great experience of trying, experiences of trying to chat to men at conferences with them, basically just getting the wrong idea when I just wanted to talk about my research. And I was quite traumatized by that. And then I went to a women in science conference in Brussels and it was just such a completely different experience. And, um, you know, I remember walking into this. So it was a women in science. So it was like a hundred women at a conference. And, you know, I, I hadn't even thought about the fact that the conferences that I've been to before were probably about 90% guys and 10% women. And here I was walking into like 100% women. And so I walked in and, um, you know, I was quite apprehensive because I just thought I'm rubbish at networking. What's this conference going to be like? And um, I, you know, like got my registration, my badge at registration, went to get a cup of tea and kind of stood at this table with some women. And for the whole two days, I didn't once have to think about, oh, I must go and talk to someone because it just felt like mm. everyone was talking to everyone else. It just helped me to realise that if you're in the majority, life is just so much easier. And it was a real kind of, you know, one of those sort of moments in your life where you realise something. Um, and so it was just amazing. And I came back from that and set up 
um, the UK's first online network for women in tech, BCS Women, so it's British Computer Society. So that's back in 98, so that's been going 23 years. And um, I remember looking up, you know, like, what are the stats? How many women are there in tech after all, you know? And it was about 15 to 20%, and here we are 23 years later, and it's still about 15 to 20%, which is crazy, absolutely crazy. So in some ways, you could say it hasn't changed at all, but I think attitudes have changed quite a lot. And people now take sort of the whole women in tech thing seriously. You know, I had conversations. Well, when I was first setting the group up, one of my um, colleagues at work, when I said, oh, I'm setting up this network for women in tech, think, you know, thinking, woohoo, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm setting up this cool thing so women can chat to each other about tech. He said, why are you ghettoizing yourself? And I was just like, what? <laughs> just like, like, I just couldn't understand oh how God. he could... See it, see it like the opposite yeah. way to the way that I saw. I was creating a ghetto. That's what he thought it was. <laughs> and I was just like, I was so excited about it. It just totally, you know, it's like someone had hit me on the head. Yeah. I, could, I was just, yeah, I couldn't understand it. And so, you know, back then there were conversations like, well, we can't have awards just for women because that's sexist. And we shouldn't have a group just for women because that's sexist. And I occasionally get people saying that sort of thing these days. But but back then that was pretty common. And, and there weren't any women in tech awards because... Um, yeah, I guess that it wasn't kind of seen as the right thing to do back then. Yeah. So so things are changing. We've got so many women in tech groups of all sorts, and it's not seen as a, a sexist thing that we shouldn't do anymore. It's seen as, like, mm. what in general, I think, not by everyone, <laughs> obviously. But um, you know, we've definitely moved forward in the last 23 years. But why has it had to take 23 years? That's a whole generation. And also, you know, so I, like yeah. If attitudes have changed and if it feels like a different place for women now, that I guess yeah. the question then is like, the attitudes changed, but the numbers haven't. No. What do you think is going to shift those numbers? Well, <laughs> we need lots of things to happen at the same time. <laughs> I mean, I, I like when I was younger, I was totally against quotas, whereas the older I get, the more I think that's the only way to do it. The only way to make a step change is to have some sort of quotas. And I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with doing that. There's enough capable women out there. You know, we could have quotas of women on boards. We could have quotas of women at senior levels in companies. And particularly in larger companies, you know, they've got the scope to be able to make that happen. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just getting much more radical in my middle age. Uh, and, you know, I just think we have to take, you know, like proper action on these things rather than just talking about it. And it's like a few years ago, it's probably about 10 years ago now, Someone was talking about the gender pay gap and I think the article said, I think it was on BBC website, I think the article said something like we won't have, uh, you know, kind of like parity in pay until, uh, I don't know, like say 70 years time or something. So I just suddenly thought to myself, gosh, I'll be dead when this happens. You know, that, that can't that can't be right. I've got to be alive when that happens. <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. So, you know, I think we should just get on with it and mm-hmm. kind of suck it up and, and make this stuff happen. And it be better for everybody it's not just better for women it's better for everyone i agree um you said in your old age you've got more radical yeah <laughs> i mean i think we all feel like that um, <laughs> this is another phrase for it but it's probably not radio appropriate but um tired of this stuff um yeah you were going to run for mayor of london in 2020 yeah. but had to pull out health reasons but i wonder yeah. is that do you kind of see politics as a way of directing that radicalism is that a route you'd want to go into yeah i don't know i think mm. you know i'm just so with the women's equality party i'm just so glad that mandu reed is um 
yeah. is the candidate because she's just so amazing. And, you know, I kind of think like, you know, I'm not really sort of fatalistic, but sometimes things happen for a reason. And I just, you know, I I just think she would make an incredible um, London mayor and would probably have a lot more energy than I have with my, you know, like full-time job, four children and five grandchildren. <laughs> I kind of, I'm moving into a different time in my life. So, yeah, I don't know really with politics. And I have to say like maybe 15 years ago, perhaps I was thinking about becoming an MP and sort of thinking about politics in that way. But just when I would see the way that particularly female politicians get treated, yeah. female MPs, it just makes, oh, it kind of breaks your heart, you know. And, like, and knowing, you know, like amazing MPs like Jess Phillips and Chiong yeah. um, and it's just like, have I got the energy to cope with something like that? And I kind of decided that no, no, I haven't. Yeah. You know, I'll have to make my sort of change happen another way. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not totally ruling it out, politics ever, but I, at the same time, I think, you know, maybe there's other ways that I can make a difference. Yeah. I mean, I think so many, I know so many brilliant women that I think, oh, I wish you would go into politics and they all sort of feel the same, really, which is, yeah. you know, just the level of ridiculousness that you have to deal with as a female yeah. MP is just, it's not worth it. No. But I wonder, the other thing I thought was quite interesting is you were talking, you said, you know, I thought about it 15 years ago and now I've got, you know, four kids and grandkids. And Yeah. Have you enjoyed the process of getting older? Because it feels like there is a bit of a revolution coming around kind of women and ageing and yeah. starting to see women actually, you know, beyond the age of 40, that, that does not, it's not the end of your life, not the end of your career, not the end of stuff you're doing. <laughs> uh, no. Actually, we still have some energy left and some things we want to do. Um, yeah. And the kind of older women are starting to fight back against the ageism and stereotypes we've so often seen. And yeah. that actually, there is this talk about actually, as you get older as a woman, you care less you've got that energy yeah. and you really are, you've had enough of stuff, so you want to make change. Do you completely. think that's how you feel? Yeah, completely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was, I was talking to my uh, my great aunt Molly, who unfortunately died a couple of years ago at the age of 98. But I remember talking to her, you know, about, I was probably saying, oh my goodness, I'm 50, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Uh, and she was like, no, from like 50 to 70 are the best years of your life. <laughs> You know, she said, you you know who you are by then, you know what you want to do, yeah. and you've still got the energy and the sort of physical capability to do it. So, you know, like once you get over 70, things start going wrong in your body and, you know, stuff like that you can't do, like you're not physically capable of doing some of the things. So so that kind of inspired me, I think. And I, and I definitely feel you know, like now I know what I think about so many things, whereas when I was younger, I wasn't quite sure about so many things. Yeah. And now, you know, having works for many years and having kids and you know my kids my three older kids are now in their 30s so having grown-up kids and seeing them having kids and seeing kind of patterns of behavior not just in me but in society and the way things are moving I think that really I'm sure most women have got to this kind of age and wanted to do stuff but I think society wasn't ready to let them do that unfortunately yeah. you know and I think our society is is misogynist and that affects all of us you know that's it's bad for all of us it's not just bad for women and I think you know thinking back there is all it's getting much better but there was you know I remember like growing up or being when I was younger you know there's very much a kind of oh don't do that you old woman or 
you know, yeah. I, you're the kind of the whole thing with witches, you know, going, going back yeah. into history. I reckon all of that is women kind of realise what's going on more and more as they get older. Yeah. And, you know, particularly sort of getting to your 40s and 50s. And you sort of realise how life hasn't been fair for you and hasn't been fair for the women around you. And you want to do something about it. And I think, you know, that kind of like the whole witchcraft thing and, and vilifying older women is stopping women who have realised what's going on from, from, from kind of making that known to or kind of credible yeah. to, to younger women or, to, you know, to everyone else. I think that is so true. So I've loved talking to you. Finally, if there is one thing that you, as an older woman with all that witchy <laughs> wisdom, middle age, middle age. <laughs> would want to yeah. make known to younger women, what would you want them to know? Life, you know, find, find other people who will support you to do what you want to do and just get out there and do it. Don't sit around worrying about stuff. I feel like, I, you know, I've done loads in my life, but I still worry too much about so much over the years. Probably 10% of my waking life has been worrying about stuff. And I do it less as I get older, but I just feel like I just worried so much about everything when I was younger and there wasn't really any point to it, really. You know, you just we've got so many opportunities now. Just get out there and go for it and encourage the, the other women around you as well. I love that advice. See, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been an absolute joy hearing from you and learning from you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That was Professor Sue Black, OB. This week's listener question made me laugh, but also, thank the Lord, it wasn't me in that situation. Here it is. So, my husband's family live on the other side of the country, and although we see them regularly, I wouldn't want to move to be closer to them. Before the pandemic, they were making noises about possibly moving closer to us to be nearer their grandchildren. But when lockdown happened, that all went quiet and I assumed they'd forgotten about it. Until last week when they announced that their house was on the market and when it sold, they were going to move in with us until they found somewhere local. I don't want to seem horrible. They're lovely people and we get on well enough. 
but the thought of living with them for some unspecified period of time is making me furious. Love my family, but I've spent the entire of lockdown cooped up with them and I'm desperate for everyone to be back at school and work again, just so we can have some more space to ourselves. And now my parents and Laura are going to move in and take that space. I just want some time to myself. Is that too much to ask? How can I tell them no? So this is, I mean, I'm sure that problem has just sent shivers down the spine to lots of people listening. You are not alone in wanting some time to yourself and not wanting to live with your parents and law. That's the first thing. It doesn't make you a horrible person if that idea does not fill you with joy. You didn't marry them. You married your husband and they just came along as part of that agreement. But there is this lovely idea that I think Glennon Doyle talks about in Untamed, where she says a relationship is an island. So the two of you are on the island and anyone else who wants to be on that island has to be invited on. And if you don't like them, you have the right to remove them from the island and pull the drawbridge up. And what I mean by this is you have the right to decide under what circumstances your parents-in-law can be invited onto your island. So I would say if you wanted to be a good person, if they sell their house and just like bear this in mind, if they sell their house, from what it says, it doesn't sound like they've sold it yet. So you might have a lot of time before they move in. You might have some time to yourself. You might be able to take a break with the other half or just by yourself before they get there. So it might not feel as daunting. So don't worry about it yet. But if it gets to the point where it does look like they're going to move in with you just for a little bit, I would set some really clear boundaries. So is there perhaps anything they do that you've kind of ignored because you don't see them that regularly? But if they were living with you, it's going to become a really big deal. For example, I'm thinking about this when like, do they comment on the way you parent Or do they perhaps allow your kids to do something that you wouldn't allow them to do or tell them off for something that you wouldn't tell them off for? Do they make suggestions or helpful inquiries about the way you run the house? All of those things. Think about those things that are a bit annoying right now, but you kind of just ignore because you're going to have to deal with them up front because when you're living with them, they are going to get very, very difficult very, very quickly. So I would think about what those things are. And then I would sit down with your parents-in-law and have a really honest chat with them. Tell them how long you're happy for them to come and live with you for and be really clear about it. You don't have to apologize. You don't have to explain. You can just say that for everyone's sake and for the sake of your relationship as a whole with them, with your husband, with your kids, you think it would be best if this was the amount of time. And then you say, there are a few things that we probably need to set out as ground rules before we all move in together. And, you know, let them have some ground rules too. Is there something they want? Do they want some time for themselves? Do they not want to be babysitting every night? Whatever it is. But then you set out yours and be really clear about what those boundaries are and what those ground rules are. Maybe you can write them down. I don't know. You're probably almost certainly going to have to refer to them. So get them up front now so that when they happen, which they will, you can remind everybody of the ground rules and the agreement that everybody made that this is the way it would play out. The other thing is to think about what could be good about this. Now, if you've got people living in the house that can look after your kids when lockdown is over, does this mean that actually you and your husband possibly if you want to take him don't have to if you don't want to could go out together could you go away for a bit together could you just go away by yourself have some space to yourself think about maybe some of the ways that you can use them to make your life easier and then now also I'd say is the time to be optimistic so be optimistic about the fact that they might not move in for ages be optimistic about the fact they might move in find somewhere they like and move straight out again and be optimistic about the fact that things are opening up so hopefully come the summer when they do if they have to move in, you'll be able to get out and about and that space you crave 
will be there for the taking. And of course, if none of this is making you feel better and you really don't want them to move in, you always have the right to say no. You have the right to say, I'm really sorry, but I just think at the moment, after a year of lockdown, we all need a bit of space. And that is okay. Find them a and b down the road, put them in a hotel, whatever it is. You know, they are adults. They are responsible for themselves. You do not have to look after them if you don't want to. When in doubt, it is okay to just say no. That's all from this week's Badass Women's Hour. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, do me a favor, please rate, review, subscribe, leave a little message of joy, happy messages only, please, on the podcast. Uh, We love to hear from you. And if you enjoy listening to me and you want to talk to me more, you can find me on social media at Harriet Minter. Otherwise, I'll be back again next week with another episode. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more badass guests and in-depth chat. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.